You've heard of a man by the name of Michael Clayton. You probably don't know him, uh, but you may know the man he imitates. Uh, Robin Williams, who looks surprisingly alike, is a Hollywood actor. And as an A-list celebrity, he is able to charge large fees for both films and guest appearances. However, Michael Clayton, a Robin Williams impersonator, last year took things a little bit too far, allegedly both deceiving newspapers and fundraisers into thinking that he was the man himself. Later, William sued Clayton for the profits made in the process. Well, I guess this is a rather negative example of imitation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that for good or ill, human beings are, generally speaking, imitators. Just think of the child who mimics their parents' mannerisms and speech patterns. Or think of that teenager who, while well, not so ardent to follow their parents' example, is very much influenced by their peers. Or even think of an adult who, perhaps more unwittingly, is nevertheless influenced by the crowd, by groupthink. Now, all this being the case, we therefore come tonight to a subject familiar to us. Indeed, as we continue our series of studies through 40 Days of Purpose, and we arrive at the third purpose of our lives, we find something very familiar, the idea of imitation. And it's a process that the Bible calls discipleship, in which you and I learn that we were created, you were created, to become like Christ. Now, how does that happen? What does that mean, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple? Well, we need to turn to the Bible, and I'd like you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. There are some few Bibles, if you need one of those. Let's read Mark, chapter 8. Verses 31 to 38. Here we discover what it means to follow and imitate the Lord Jesus. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Amen. And this is the word of God to us tonight. Well, you were created to become like Christ. But if you are a thinking person, then you might ask at least two questions of clarification about that. Uh, Firstly, what kind of Christ is Jesus? Who is this individual that we are called to be like? And secondly, in what respects am I called to be like him? How specifically, in what aspects am I called to be Christ-like? Well, Jesus provides some answers in Mark 8, 31 to 38. And first of all, Jesus describes the Christ we must follow. The Christ we must follow. If you are an artist who wishes to produce an imitation of someone, a portrait, then you must first study the subject, before putting the brush to the paper. You see, an artist cannot imitate what he does not first evaluate. And Jesus is aware that the same is true for the would-be disciple. We can only pattern our lives after Christ once we first perceive what sort of Christ he is. Unfortunately, if the disciples are anything to go by, this may not be as easy as we think. Indeed, it's taken a whole eight chapters in Mark's Gospel for the disciples to get anywhere near the identity of Jesus. And while Jesus has been dropping many clues as to his identity, performing miracles, which are signposts, pointers to his identity, providing teaching, for those with ears to hear that the kingdom has come, that the king has arrived. Nevertheless, the disciples are still mystified. And it's only when we get to Mark chapter 8, verse 29, that the penny finally drops. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the disciples' spokesperson, replies, you are the Christ, you are the king. Now, I suppose if this were a game of charades, or charades, however you call it, uh, the game would be over. The individual had been identified correctly. However, although this was an important breakthrough, there was much more that the disciples had to understand about Jesus. You see, at the time when Jesus lived, and we really need to grasp this, there were all sorts of wrong ideas about the Messiah. You see, the Jews expected very much a military king. A Messiah from David's line, yes, but one who would be irresistible in battle, who would overthrow Israel's enemies immediately. But Jesus is aware that he won't be that kind of king. He is the king, but he's not that kind of king. Which is why from verse 31 following, Jesus gives further teaching about the proper nature, the true nature of his kingship. 
as the NIV says, and he then began to teach them. Like a school teacher who can't begin on advanced maths before he's first taught basic addition and subtraction. Jesus says, you're on the right track. Yes, I am the king, but you've lots more to learn about my brand of kingship. And first of all, you need to learn that I am the suffering king. I want you to grasp above all, not that I'm the sovereign king or the successful king, but the suffering king. I know this may be shocking. I want you to understand at least four stages en route to my coronation. Look at them in the text. First of all, he says, I'm going to suffer many things. Verse 31. As part of this, the Son of Man will be rejected by the very establishment expected to welcome the Messiah. Thirdly, I will be killed, he adds. And finally, I will rise again on the third day. Just imagine what this would have sounded like to Jesus' disciples. Thinking of the rugby today, yesterday. It's a little like the the rugby captain in the team talk before the game, huddling people around and informing the side that they're going to lose a number of tries immediately. That's what it sounded like to the disciples. A promise of defeat. But the disciples have to understand that this is the kind of king Jesus has come to be. He's the suffering king. And they have to grasp And mark this closely, that Jesus is the suffering king because he is also the obedient son. Underline this whole teaching is the fact that Jesus is ready to suffer because he understands the plan of God. Did you notice that in verse 31? The divine must. Jesus doesn't simply say, the son of man will suffer, the son of man will be killed, but the son of man must suffer. He must. Jesus is working, you see, to a different agenda, a divine agenda. And no wonder Peter and the other disciples can't begin to comprehend it. And so in verse 32, a dumbfounded Peter takes the plain-talking Jesus aside and gives him some straight-talking of his own. But in actual fact, it's Peter's thinking that is askew. And Jesus says to him in verse 33, You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You see, this is the difference between the logic of Jesus and the logic of his disciples. Peter's logic is entirely natural. But that's precisely the problem with it. It is entirely natural. He's thinking just as humans think. And he naturally assumes that suffering and rejection and death can't be good things. But this kind of thinking comes from earth. It doesn't come from heaven. It comes from finite wisdom, not infinite wisdom. And ultimately, frighteningly, it comes from the evil one himself. Because Jesus retorts before all the disciples, Peter, get behind Satan. He recognizes the accents of Satan behind the rebuke of Peter. You see, unwittingly, Peter, with his earthly logic, in attempting to divert Jesus from the plan of God, as he does this, he takes sides with Satan himself. Because right from the beginning, Satan has been trying to thwart the plan of God. 
And any suggestion to Jesus to turn him from this road comes not from God above, but from him who is below. But Jesus will not forsake the plan. The divine agenda must be fulfilled. And why, we ask? Well, because you and I are sinners, and because by God's will, Jesus is the Savior. You see, we need a suffering Savior. If the human problem was only that we were just a little bit aimless, you know, a little bit disorganized, then all we would need is a good statesman, a leader of acumen to come and govern us, set things in order. But the human problem is not just that we lack a ruler, though we do, but that we lack righteousness. It's not just that we lack a king, but that we have offended a king. That's why we have no king to rule over us. We've rejected him from Eden till the present. And having turned away from God and sought independent rule, the wrath of God, God's holy anger is targeted upon us. And this is why, for the love of God, Jesus must go to the cross. He must. And no doubt it grieves Jesus still that so many people today, like Peter long ago, don't like the plan. They think there's a better emphasis. They think there's a better job description for Jesus. And they peddle a gospel that's really no gospel at all. Presenting a Jesus divorced from the cross, divorced from God's wrath poured out on him for our sins. And we sit in the church on holiday knowing that unless it's Easter, we won't hear of the cross, we won't hear of the suffering king. And Jesus says, this is who I am. And the suffering king, the obedient son who died for your sins. And you see, it's only once we grasp this, the identity of Jesus, that we are then ready to take those first steps in discipleship. See, only then can you really ask, what will it take to follow Jesus down this Calvary road? What will it involve to be a disciple of Jesus on a Monday morning? Well, in verses 34 to 38, Jesus offers a picture of discipleship. It's a graphic picture. It's an unmistakable picture in its meaning. So from the Christ we must follow to secondly, the cross we must bear. It was at the start of the Second World War that, in a famous speech, Winston Churchill promised nothing but blood, toil, sweat, and tears. And without any use of political spin whatsoever, he mobilized the nation without covering over the costs. And the Lord Jesus is also equally upfront regarding the costs of discipleship. He's not some sly salesman who hides the extra outlay in the small print. He gathers the whole crowd to himself, to any would-be disciples, and he plainly sets out two demands of discipleship. First of all, he says that discipleship will involve denying the self. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Valentine's Day is coming up soon, and some of you, I imagine, will be booking tables for meals, that kind of thing. And sometimes after a 
a large meal like that, we, we say as we come to dessert that we might deny ourselves the dessert. It's actually a pretty superficial example of self-denial if you think about it when you've just overindulged so much. And nevertheless, it's key to notice that this is a different kind of denial Jesus is talking about. He's not simply saying that we must deny ourselves certain things. He's actually saying that we must deny the self itself. Our very own ego must be restrained and put down. Of course, as Peter was saying this morning, the negative example of this was the Pharisees. Why, outwardly, they were so keen to give up certain things. They would be the first to tithe. They were eager to keep everyone in the loop that they were fasting twice a, twice a week. And yet, despite all these external things, they were not denying the self. Self-promotion, self-aggrandizement was at the top of their agenda. And Jesus says, that is not what discipleship is about. In his excellent book, Laid Back Religion, G.I. Packer described, I think it was about 20 years ago, a problem that he saw in the Western church of this pampering of the self. And he described it in an excellent little phrase. He said, it's hot tub religion. Hot tub religion, he wrote, is Christianity trying to beat materialism, humanism, and Hollywood at their own game, rather than challenging the errors that the game reflects. And so very easily, we can become that kind of people, that kind of church that tries to pamper egos, just simply make people feel good. And very soon, when such unbridled self-centeredness remains unchallenged, the church begins to fragment. We become like the church in Corinth, where self-interest groups and personality cults form, where one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, and still another, I follow Peter. Do you hear all the eyes in there? And Paul writes to them with pain in his soul, and he says, Is Christ divided? There's only one personality who should be center stage, and it's the Lord Jesus. And following him, true discipleship will mean denying the self. But secondly, it also means bearing the cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And his hearers would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Under Roman rule, executions of this sort was commonplace, public, and to make things just extra shameful, the criminal would be forced to carry his own cross, one of the crossbeams, through the streets to the place of crucifixion. And thus Jesus is saying, and it's shocking really, if you want to be my disciple, join the funeral cortege. Take up your cross and follow me. Be prepared not just to deny yourself, but to die yourself. Radical words. Of course, we mostly, mainly live in a society where the costs aren't that high. And it may not be that we have to suffer that kind of thing for preaching the gospel, for being a Christian. And yet the sad reality is that even with the low rates in our 
country, our environment, many are unwilling to meet the costs. They'll attend church, they'll agree to certain doctrines, but the thought of being misunderstood or rejected or laughed at because they're a Christian, well, that seems, seems too much. The idea that they might have to sacrifice career prospects because they hold to Christian principles, that seems overpriced. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in another famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, lamented such knockdown price faith. He called it cheap grace. He said cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, is following Jesus Christ costing you anything? Is there some bill you pay monthly or daily Again, I know we live in a country where it's not liable to cost you everything. But I'm not asking you if it costs you everything, just does it cost you something, anything. When was the last time it inconvenienced you to follow Christ? J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, once said, A cheap Christianity without a cross will end up a poor Christianity without a crown. And that's precisely what Jesus goes on to show in verses 35 to 38. Jesus gives us a warning. You see, maybe at this point you're thinking to yourself, this is all a little bit radical. Perhaps you're not a Christian and you're saying to yourself, well, discipleship hardly sounds appealing. In fact, who in their right mind would be a disciple? And maybe you're even a Christian. And perhaps your commitment is not what it might be. And again, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, this level of commitment seems so pricey. Can't I go for a, a cheaper level of sub subscription? And to you, Jesus would say, listen, consider the results of rejection. You see, there is a cost to discipleship, but there is an even greater cost to rejecting discipleship. In fact, there are, according to Jesus, two results of rejection. Number one, he says, losing your life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's ironic, isn't it, that so many people who reject Christ for a more happy life rarely find one. They're unhappy. David Lodge is a, a novelist, and he tells a story in one of his books of a man who goes for therapy. The man's desperately depressed, and his therapist asked him to draw on a piece of paper two columns. Under one heading, he's to list all the bad things in his life, and under the other heading, all the good things. Well, he has no trouble filling in the good column. He's professionally successful. Filthy rich, with good health, a stable marriage, children launched into adult life, a nice house, and a great car, and as many holidays as he wants. Under the bad heading, he writes just one thing. Unhappy, most of the time. 
And if you reject the call to discipleship, that will be true of you. And not only will this life be unsatisfying, but the end result will ultimately be loss of life, loss of your soul altogether. Listen to what Jesus says. What good will it be for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Remember the story in the Old Testament of Esau. Esau's been out hunting. He's a man of the outdoors. And he arrives home absolutely famished. And his brother Jacob, coincidentally, is cooking this wonderful bowl of soup. Well, Esau, in the heat of the moment, pledges his birthright to Jacob. He forfeits all the privileges of being a firstborn son for a plate of lentil soup. You say, that's really stupid. Yes, but here's what's really, really stupid. If we forfeit a place in God's family with all its priceless privileges for the trifles of the world. Perhaps you saw the story this week of a man in Cambridge in a museum. He stumbled into and broke a priceless vase. And in a split second, he shattered something of priceless value. He couldn't mend the damage. And Jesus says, if you forfeit your soul, something of infinite value, you cannot regain what you lose. Salvation scorned in this life cannot be regained in the next. Rejecting discipleship will mean losing your life, and moreover, it will mean securing your shame. Do you know that the suffering king will one day return, he's promised it, to be the conquering king? It's a fact. If anyone is ashamed of me, verse 38, and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. See, the key issue on that day will be, were we ashamed of Christ in this life? Were we embarrassed to be associated with him, to follow him? See, here's a puzzling thing. I find this very strange. Maybe, maybe I'm speaking mainly to men now, to women as well. It's puzzling that many men would engage in all sorts of acts of heroism if called upon. Some of you may not believe that, but just look back at two world wars. Look at the flat downstairs. People stepping up for their country. Some of you would take bullets for your country. And that's strange because some of you are afraid of a little ridicule, a little name-calling for Christ. What will people think? And I say to you so soberly but urgently, if you are ashamed of Christ in this life, he will be ashamed of you in the next. You will arrive at the door of the party. You will knock on the door and Jesus will say to you, I never knew you. And it doesn't have to be that way. Because discipleship, though it may be costly, if you respond to the call, can get you ready to face death, ready to face the challenges of life with nothing to lose in the ultimate sense. John Patton, 
don't know if you've ever heard of him. John Patton was a missionary who set out to the Hebrides, New Hebrides, back in the 19th century. The place that Patton went to was an island where two missionaries had been killed 17 years prior, before he went. In fact, they had not only been killed, they had been killed and then they had been cooked by the cannibalistic natives. And upon hearing the news of Patton's impending trip, a church member, a Mr. Dixon, took him aside to give him a bit of a talking to. He warned him, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Could you say such a thing? Only a true disciple can face life and death quite like that. So, in conclusion, as we come to this table, we speak of a suffering king, the Lord Jesus who died for us. Let me ask you, do you know Christ? Do you know the king? Not just any Christ, not just the Jesus you heard about, but this Christ who suffered and died and bore God's wrath for you. Do you know him personally? Do you trust him? Will you come humbly tonight, turning from a life of self-absorption, a sin-riddled life, to be forgiven through his blood? Your eternal destiny is at stake if you're not a Christian tonight. And to those of you who are Christians, I think it's probably a relatively easy thing to speak in the abstract about becoming like Christ. Sure, we all want to be like Jesus, don't we? But are you becoming like Christ in his death? That's the challenge. Is our attitude to life shaped more like a cross or a cushion? Some of us, after we first trusted Christ, no price was too high. No cost was too much for us to name his name, to live out the gospel. And yet recently we've not been paying, paying our bills. And Jesus would say to you tonight, take up your cross again and follow me. Another man who knew much about discipleship, Paul the Apostle, said this, about following Christ and I trust and pray we can say this with him whatever was to my profit I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I count them rubbish that I may gain Christ becoming like him in his death. May it be so. Let's pray together.